0: I think I'm actually gonna. I just, and I know this is probably not best for what we're attempting to do with the taping, but I think I just feel led to do this. I just feel very compelled. If we have to retape this session where I give it a little more justice, that'll be fine. But what I wanna do, I'd, let, let me go quickly through this lesson so that you can get everything there in your notes. And then I just feel very compelled by God to, to, to end in a particular way uh, tonight. So uh, follow along in your notes and just know uh, I'm not going to handle this as I had anticipated, as I expected. But uh, I'll be able to communicate to you the heart of this lesson, which is an amazing one, uh, on how God advances His kingdom through persecution. That God literally is unstoppable. And uh, we do not ever need to fear that he will not accomplish his purposes. Uh, Just begin with the introduction there in your notes. Um, This is, now remember the historical setting. uh, Our last lesson we looked at the prophet Jeremiah. Who pronounced judgment on the nation for the shedding of innocent blood. And because of their refusal to repent, uh, God had to bring that catastrophic judgment uh, at the hands of the Babylonians uh, who destroyed the city of Jerusalem. Uh, Many of the uh, Judeans were uh, slaughtered uh, at that time, but then many were taken away into captivity. And when we come to Daniel, Daniel as a teenage boy was one of those individuals that was taken captive by the Babylonians and taken back to uh, Babylon to be uh, trained uh, to uh, work in Nebuchadnezzar's administration. This was sort of Nebuchadnezzar's custom when he would conquer a land. He would take some of their most choice youths and he would extract them and then he would try to indoctrinate them in all the Babylonian customs and religions and education and and training and then use them in his administration. And this was the case with Daniel and his uh, three friends. So look at the introduction. There were several deportations of Jewish captives to Babylon Babylon, both before and after uh, the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem. And we know that took place in 586 B.C. Daniel and his three friends, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah were part of the first deportation after the initial siege and capture of Jerusalem, which occurred in 605 B.C. Uh, they were probably, and this is sort of amazing to think of, they were probably just 15 or 16 years old at the time. Uh, taken from their families in Jerusalem, as I mentioned, to serve in, Babylon, in a Babylonian king's administration. Uh We know that Daniel, of course, served in both the Babylonian and the Medo-Persian empires well into his 80s. Uh, The first six chapters of the book of Daniel is the story, don't miss this, it is the story of how God used these four men in a culture hostile to their faith to bring the knowledge of the one true living God to a heathen world. Each of the six six, uh, chapters, first six chapters, each of those first six chapters tell a separate story with a final concluding paragraph which summarizes the impact of their testimony. Now listen very carefully. Sadly, the first six chapters of Daniel are typically seen as nothing more than a string of great Sunday school stories that we tell kids about praying hard, and how not to get burned up or eaten by lions. And most people in our churches have, have totally missed what's being communicated in these six chapters. And it is one of the greatest illustrations in all of the Bible of our sovereign, almighty God. And how persecution cannot stop him. And his work will advance and he will accomplish His purposes. Now, you see there in your notes, each one of the chapters, and you see the testimony of these four young men, and then you have the verses at the end of each chapter that give the impact of what took place. And again, I'm just going to move through this quickly. I had planned to take a little bit more time, and it's it's an exciting story. But chapter 1, you remember, they refused to compromise God's Word. Uh, they their ask is as they're going through training to compromise some of their dietary laws. And uh, they refuse to compromise God's word. They make a stand. They're very kind about it. They make an appeal to the man that's training them uh, to give them an opportunity uh, to, uh, to be tested. And, and to, to be able to prove themselves. And he gives them that opportunity. And then again going to the latter part of Daniel chapter 1. Notice the result of their testimony. This is the point of these first six chapters. How God used these four young men to bring a heathen world to the knowledge of God. So this is where it begins. They're only teenagers. And then it says in verse 18, 19 and 20. Then at the end of the days, which the king had specified for presenting them, the commander of the officials presented them before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king talked with them. And out of them all, not one was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, so that they entered the king's personal service. And as for every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and conjurers who were all, in all his realm. So the, what happens in chapter 1? they get Nebuchadnezzar's attention and the attention of a lot of other people. Now, they don't realize right now what's making a difference in these young men. They just know they're different. They know they're special. They have a unique understanding and wisdom and integrity about them. And so they're attracted to these guys and, uh, and this, they're amazing uh, uh, just wisdom again and, and skill. Then you go to chapter 2, you go to chapter 2, And you have, uh, uh, when Daniel interprets the king's dream, you remember what happens. The king has a dream, really bothers him. He brings all of his wise men in, and he says, hey, I want you to interpret this dream. They said, king, give us the dream, and we'll give you an interpretation. Now, he says, I know you guys' tricks. You tell me the dream and give me the interpretation, and if you don't, I'm killing all of you, which would have included Daniel and his three buddies. So Daniel goes into the king and says, oh, king. I says, uh, uh, give us an opportunity uh, to interpret your dream. He says, okay. So Daniel goes to his three friends and they pray. And they seek God. They cry out to God. And God, in his infinite mercy, supernaturally gives Daniel the dream and the interpretation. And he shares it with Nebuchadnezzar. So notice the impact of that. Look at the end of chapter 2 of uh, Daniel, uh, verse 46, 47, 48, and 49. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and did homage to Daniel and gave orders to present to him an offering and a fragrant incense. The king answered Daniel and said, Surely your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings. And a revealer of mysteries since you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts. And he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon. And chief uh, prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. And Daniel made request of the king. And he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That were their Babylonian names. Over the administration of the province of Babylon. While Daniel was at the king's court. So what happened? Chapter 1. These guys are different. They're special. Get their attention. Chapter 2, now they're beginning to make the connection. What makes these guys different is their faith in God and the God that they serve. Now you go to chapter 3. And in chapter 3, you see Daniel confronting Nebuchadnezzar. Um, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream Daniel gives him the interpretation. Basically, he confronts the king about his pride, about his arrogance. And he makes a very strong appeal to the king. He says, king, you need to humble yourself before God. Because if you do not humble yourself before God, you're going to suffer the consequences of what he had warned him about in interpreting the dream. That he would go into madness until he acknowledged God's sovereignty. And you know the story. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar did not repent, he did not respond, he did not humble himself. And uh, sometime after that, uh, what Daniel said would happen did exactly happen. He became insane. Remember, eating grass like an animal. And then you remember, as God prophesied, he came out of that recognizing God with a sovereign God. Look at the impact of it all when you go to the end of chapter 3, verse 28. 29 and 30, Nebuchadnezzar responded and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I got ahead of myself, didn't I? Chapter 3 is what? The fiery furnace. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Forgive me. Chapter 3 is the fiery furnace. And you remember how the men refused to compromise their convictions. And as a result, were thrown in the fire. Uh, and and look, at, look at their response. Look at verse 15. Uh, go to the middle of the verse. Uh, he says, But if you will not worship, you will be immediately cast into the midst of the furnace of the blazing fire, and what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this. If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire. And and, uh, he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. And then, of course, you know how God delivered them, spared them, and now look at the impact of the testimony at verse 28, Nebuchadnezzar responded and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who put their trust in him, violating civil disobedience, the king's command, and yielded up their bodies so as not to serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree that any people, nation, or tongue that speaks anything offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb... And their house is reduced to a rubbish heap inasmuch as there is no other God who is able to deliver in this way. Then the king calls Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to prosper in the province of Babylon. Notice what happens now. Chapter 1, hey, these kids get their attention. Chapter 2, they make the connection. What makes them special is their God. Chapter 3, they have this amazing deliverance. The king gives his decree, and think what just happened. If you say anything offensive about this God of theirs, you're done. You and your entire household. What do, you think what, what do you think the Babylonians would have been doing? I would have been looking for the nearest Jew. Say, will you please tell me about your God? The last thing I want to do is say anything offensive, do anything offensive, and suffer the king's decree, suffer the king's consequences. So now these Jews, who had gone into captivity because of their failure to be what God had commanded them to be, called them to be, now they're forced to be a witness for him. And they're teaching these Babylonians about God and about their religion and about the practice of that religion. Then you go to chapter 4. That's where I got ahead of myself. And this is where Nebuchadnezzar uh, refuses to repent, he goes into madness, and then he, uh, God brings him out of it, and look at the t- impact. Verse 34 of chapter 4, but as At the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation, and all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. But he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, What hast thou done? At the time my reason returned to me and my majesty and splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom and my counselors and my nobles began seeking me out so I was reestablished in my sovereignty and surpassing greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt and honor the King of heaven for all his works are true and his ways are just and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. Now what's happened? Now Nebuchadnezzar is what? Praising God, the living God. He's literally been converted to faith in the living God. Then you go to chapter 5, and you got to fast forward a few years. There's a co-regent that's on the throne. It's, it's not the Nebuchadnezzar of uh, chapter 5 called Belteshazzar. He doesn't have Nebuchadnezzar's heart for God. He disdains God. He mocks God. And Daniel warns him that judgment is impending unless you turn, unless you repent. He refuses to, and they're overthrown by the Medes and the Persians. And we won't uh, read all of that. And then you go to chapter 6, the last chapter. Now the Medes and Persians are in control. Darius is the king. And you have old Daniel now. He's an older man, a man of great integrity. He prays three times a day. He's opened his window toward Jerusalem, prays to God. The other wise men are very envious of him folks in the administration, and they get, they trick the king, as you know, to sign this decree uh, about his a violation to, to pray, and uh, and David, again, has to commit civil disobedience like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did, and as a result, he's thrown in the lion's den, and he's spared, and look at the impact of his uh, testimony. You go to the end of chapter 6, uh, look at verses uh 25, 26, and 27. Then Darius the king wrote to all the peoples, notice this, he wrote to all the peoples, nations and men of every language who are living in all the land, may your peace abound. I make a decree that in all the dominion of my kingdom, and this is the world empire at the time, men are to fear and tremble before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and enduring forever, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed, and his dominion will be forever. He delivers and rescues and performs signs and wonders in heaven and on earth, who has delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. Now, what we need to realize is that God used these men... To bring the heathen nations the knowledge of God. Look at the key truth. The key truth in your notes. God raised up the nation of Israel to be his witness for all the nations of the world. But Israel lost sight of their mission from God. They perverted their religion. Became totally self-centered. Becoming a greater mission field than the surrounding Gentile nations. God is forced to judge his own people. And it appears that all is lost. They failed. God has failed. But here is the amazing thing about the book of Daniel that shows us just how great our God is. God accomplishes through the testimony of Daniel and his three friends while in captivity to God's enemies what the nation of Israel failed to accomplish over many, many years, and that is to make God known to the nations of the world. Incredible testimony how God will advance his work even in the midst of uh, persecution and difficulty. Now, let me just give you these uh, lessons learned from Daniel, and then I want to close, like I said, in a little special way tonight. The first lesson that we learn, we must not make the same mistake as Israel and forget the primary purpose of our lives in our pregnancy centers. We are to make Christ known to others. Therefore, serving in pregnancy center ministry should not be out of a commitment uh, to the pro-life cause only, but more out of a commitment to what? The Lordship of Christ. I'm not saying we shouldn't be committed to the pro-life cause, but it should go deeper than that. I trust you are where you are because Jesus is your Lord and He's called you to this ministry. All pregnancy center staff, and workers should know the call of God and be committed to living a holy life. Our greatest desire should be to know God and to make Him known to others. We must always maintain the priority of living and sharing the gospel to our clients. And can I be very transparent right now? I've been in this ministry as long as anyone, one of my greatest concerns is that many of our ministries are drifting from the priority of the gospel. And I pray that that will never happen. I pray that as a movement, uh, pregnancy centers will always realize our fundamental call is to follow God in advancing the gospel. And this ministry is just another vehicle to do that. And we are to live and to share the gospel. And we're never to allow anything to compromise us from doing that. Nothing. That must always be our heart. The second lesson we learn. The integrity of our lives and ministries is what God uses to catch the attention of a watching world. Integrity is maintaining a respectful attitude toward all, being faithful in all things, living a pure life, and maintaining a consistent walk with God. And again, because I'm covering this quickly, I'll let you examine these verses later. But bottom line, the God you communicate is not the God you talk about. It's the God whose life you live. And you cannot impart to others what you do not possess yourself. So the most important thing in ministry is authenticity in terms of being grounded in your relationship with Christ, grounded in the Word of God, realizing that God has placed you there for Christ to be formed in you, to be displayed through you. That we need to view our pregnancy centers as this extension of God's presence in the communities that he's placed us. To express the lovely character of Christ. To execute his will. Exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. And to engage the lost with the gospel of Christ. Third lesson. Faith means trusting and obeying God regardless of my feelings within me. The circumstances around me, or the consequences before me, and you see that especially with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, chapter three. It doesn't make any difference if God delivers us or doesn't deliver us. We're not serving false gods. We're going to stay true to the one true God. And you had to know, no, they had to have been feeling what? Frightened, terrified in that situation. They were in the most ominous circumstances. They knew what the consequences would be, but they stayed true to their God. They knew an uncompromising faith. They were willing to pay the price, and they even counted suffering for him, even to the point of death, a badge of honor, as they would into that fire. The fourth lesson, persecution is used by God, not only to purify his people, but to bring salvation to our persecutors. You know, we talked about how God used persecution to purify David, but also to use him in the lives of others. We've seen that throughout this study. So, God's persecution is not only to purify us, but to provide a platform to bring his salvation to others. I'll give you a quick, great illustration of this. I was doing a fundraising banquet for a center in uh, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, years ago. Before I spoke, they had a client testimony. The girl stands up, And this is basically what she said. She said, before I came into this pregnancy center, I knew they were a Christian ministry. I knew they were pro-life, and I hated everything they stood for. But I needed that pregnancy test. I was scared. I was frightened that I was pregnant. I didn't have any money. I knew it was a free service. So he said, I went into that pregnancy center, and I had two objectives to get that pregnancy test and to get the results. And then number two, I wanted to see how miserable I could make it for those folks in there. That's exactly what she said. She said she goes in, I get introduced to this. She said, this was a little older client. She was in her late 20s. And she said they introduced me to the, the, the my volunteer counselor. She said she was just this petite little girl, uh, homemaker, and, and this girl... Uh, she, she probably stood probably 6'1", and, uh, and you could you know, imagine her in those days, been a pretty uh, intimidating force. And she actually said, I could have taken her in one hand and crushed her. <laughs> she said, I got introduced to her, we went into the room, and she said, I took off. I said before she could say anything, she sort of said, you blankety-blank, blank, 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 and this blankety-blank. She said, I used the most vile language imaginable. And she said, I don't want to hear any blankety-blank, blank thing you want to tell me. I don't want to see any blankety-blank thing you want to show me. I just want that blankety-blank pregnancy test and the blankety-blank results, and then I'm blankety-blank out of here. <laughs> she said, I just kept getting meaner and meaner, more and more vile. And the meaner I got, and the viler I got, I got increasingly frustrated because I couldn't knock that stupid smile off of that (laughs) sweet little thing's face. Now, let's be honest. Let's be totally honest. That volunteer was dying a thousand deaths. That volunteer was thinking, I guarantee she was thinking this, if I survive this episode, if I survive this session, i 'm never coming back here. I 'm out of here. i 'm putting my resignation in. i didn 't sign up for something like this. So she goes out and she gets the girl, and it was a positive test result. And she gives her that news. The girl says, "You blankety blank, blank, blank blank, blank, blank blank That was the last thing she wanted to hear. i 'm going to have a blankety blank, blank abortion. Blanket, I mean, just, just, she just spews all over. The, gr- the girl uh, hops up to walk out. As she hops up, little counselor, she stands up and just didn't do this intentionally. It's just the lay of the room. When she stood up, she's between the client and the door. So the, 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 the client has to halt for just a second as she's looking at her. And this little counselor looks up in her face, and she says, Before you leave, would you give me the privilege of hugging you? <laughs> it's a true story. I'm not embellishing a word of it. The client said, When she said that, I couldn't believe it. I mean, I was stunned. I was shocked. How can anybody ask to hug this after the way I treated her? And she said, before I could scream, no, get out of my way. I'm out of here. She said she had me in her arms. <laughs> and she said, and she wouldn't let go. She just kept holding. She kept squeezing. And she said, in her arms, I broke and began to uncontrollably weep. And she said, we stood there literally for minutes with me weeping uncontrollably. And she said, you know why? This was in her testimony. Again, she was up in her upper 20s. I can't remember her exact age. But she says, I'm you know, 28, 29 years old. That was the first time in my life that anyone had ever shown me any physical affection that did not have an ulterior motive to abuse me or use me. This was an individual that had been terribly sexually abused and molested younger in his life. And you know, when people suffer that hurt, that pain, they put up walls. I mean, typical attitude is, I'm not going to trust anybody and I'm going to try to intimidate everybody. Because I'm not going to make myself vulnerable again. I'm not going to get hurt again. And then she said, and you know, the counseling session didn't end. That's when it just began. She said, I sat back down. I turned from abortion to choose life for my baby. And she had the baby there at the banquet to show the, the boy off. And then she said, and that day at the pregnancy center, I came to know Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And I've never been the same since. So persecution is used by God. Not only to purify his people. But to bring salvation to our persecutors. And then the fifth lesson. Is that when persecuted. Bless your persecutors. Never retaliate. And wait on God to vindicate. Bless. Never retaliate. And wait on God to vindicate. Put down three words. You're not going to be able to do this. Unless you choose to forgive. As Christ forgave. And there's three words. That capture the heart of true biblical forgiveness. And most believers don't understand. True biblical forgiveness. They typically never get past. The first point. Maybe they get to the second point. Very few ever get to the third. The first word release. In other words. If you've hurt me, you've abused me, you've wronged me in some way, you've slandered me, whatever it might be. And I say, I forgive you, the first thing I'm saying biblically, if I understand biblical forgiveness is, I release you of the debt I believe you owe me because of what you did to me. In other words, I release the right to hurt you for hurting me. That's where forgiveness does done. In there, that's the first step in forgiveness. I release you of the debt. I believe you owe me for hurting me, for wounding me, for abusing me. The second word, promise. And this is at the heart of true forgiveness. Forgiveness is a promise that you make to the one who offended you, to the one who hurt, it, hurt you, that I'm never going to throw this back up in your face in such a way that it would divide us. I am committed from this point on to build a bridge to you as far as it is possible with me. I cannot control their response, their attitude, how they, but I am responsible for mine like we talked about with Joseph and I'm making a promise to you I am not going to let this prevent me from attempting to build a bridge to you. And then the third word, and this is the word that we typically don't get to or the step, it's an investment. You haven't haven't expressed true forgiveness until you invest your life in the person who hurt you. And Jesus couldn't have been clearer here. He says, if somebody has harmed you, you are what? To do good to them. He says, if you have somebody who hates you, you do good to them. If you have somebody who's abused you, you get on your knees and you pray for them. If you have someone who has cursed you with their mouth, you're to bless them with your mouth. You have someone who hates you, who's out to kill you, your enemy. He wants to take you out. He says, you find a need that they have and you give yourself to meet that need. That is true biblical forgiveness. And it's a choice I make whether to obey God or not. Has nothing to do with my feelings initially. I make that step because He is worthy of that obedience, because of the forgiveness He demonstrated to me when I was at my worst. So that's true biblical forgiveness. And then look at the sixth lesson. When any earthly authority commands what is contrary to God's Word, it is the duty of Christians to practice civil disobedience. When Jesus said in Matthew twenty-two, twenty-one, 21, Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God's what is God, it is not God and Caesar. It was and is and always will be God and Caesar. In other words, it's not God and Caesar on the same level. It's God and then Caesar. And no delegated authority on earth has the authority to command you to do what is contrary to God's laws. Because he's the ultimate authority. And I'm telling you, in the culture in which we live today, we're going to have to be prepared to practice civil disobedience if it comes down to it. For example, praise God we won that case at the Supreme Court level. You know, the, you know what I'm talking about, the California case. And almost identical laws were passed in Illinois and Hawaii that mandated pregnancy centers to promote abortion. That is a clear-cut case where you say, No, I can't do that for conscience sake under the lordship of Jesus Christ. You maintain kindness, gentleness, respect, respect. But there comes a place, if you're not willing to commit civil disobedience, then Jesus is not your Lord. It's just that simple. This is how I want to close. Um, And I'll be another about ten minutes, and then we'll dismiss. Uh, I want to share with you um, when God called me to this ministry in uh, March of 1972. And when He called me to this ministry, He drove three truths into my heart. He marked me that night when He called me. And I've never been able to escape these truths. I'm not saying that I've arrived at any one of them. Again, I'm still a work in progress. But I've always believed that these three truths are Andy Merritt's basic life message. uh, To communicate to others and especially those in pregnancy center uh, work. Uh, It was March of 1972. I had only been saved... About a year and a half. I was only 20 years old. I was saved out of a very deep life of sin and rebellion. Uh, Was into drugs and alcohol. I I came up through the late 60s. The immorality that went with that. It was a long time I thought I was the life of the party. Having a great time. Then... It was a God thing. I didn't know it at the time, but it was like a light switch went off. And there was no more fun. There was no more pleasure, just darkness and depression, because I realized I was trapped, and I couldn't get out. And I got to the place where I desperately wanted to get out. And I was literally lapping up my own vomit And I won't give you the story of my conversion, but God, in His infinite mercy, brought me to Him. And when He brought me to Him, I came to Him in total, absolute brokenness. And I realized when I came to Him, He not only broke the penalty of sin, He broke the power of sin. And He made me a new creation. And I was able to walk away from those strongholds and those addictions uh, to follow Him. I know... That's not every person's experience. Sometimes it's a long process. And I'm not saying I still didn't have battles and temptations. I did. Had moments of falter and failing. But it was a dramatic life change. Entered a Bible college. Because I wanted to serve God. I was in my second year. You had only been saved a year and a half. I'm in the school library. That was in a basement area during study hours, just doing my homework. As I'm doing my homework, right above the library was the student chapel. I could hear the college choir, and they were practicing an Easter musical. And the beauty of the music, very similar uh, uh, to what we experienced last night with the Sons of Jubal, just, just sort of captured me. And you know, and I, I'd come out of that hard rock, acid rock culture, and and again, I'd only been saved a year and a half, so God's still cleaning me out, and and reprogramming everything with beautiful Christian music and that's rooted in God's word. So I just thought, hey, I'll I'll take my studies, and I'll just set up in the stairwell, in between the chapel and the basement, where I can do my work. And just hear the music better. And that's exactly what I did. I was just, with the background of the music, I was just doing my work like I was supposed to be doing. Forgive me, I've, but I've never been able to tell this. Well, this, this happening. They began to sing the most beautiful arrangement of "Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord to thee." I was still a relatively new believers I mentioned. I had never heard the hymn before. The words just captured me. I thought, I've never heard anything (laughs) that expresses what God had done in my heart. And in that stairwell, I just began... To pray the words of that hymn, just in worshiping God, just consecrating my life afresh to Him. As I did, uh, there's no way I could explain or express uh, what took place. It's a very unique, powerful, overwhelming encounter with God. I had never had an experience like this before. I've never had an experience like that since. I didn't see anything with my eyes. I didn't hear anything with my ears. But the overwhelming sense of God's presence was beyond anything I could ever describe. There was this fear of His holiness... But as I'm wanting to draw back, there's the draw of his love toward him. I thought I literally, literally was going to die. All I knew, again, I'm a new believer. I'm not understanding everything that's happened. All I knew, I had to get alone with God that night. College had strict rules. Had to get on the phone to the dean of students, Dr. Dean Savage said, Dr. Savage, I don't know what's happening. All I, God's working. He's, uh, will you allow me to leave the campus and get alone with God tonight? And he said, Andy, you just do what you need to do. I went to the pastor's apartment where I was serving as youth director. To be very honest, in that moment, he wasn't as loving as Dean Savage, because <laughs> I actually woke him up and him and his wife because I wanted the keys to the church, to go to the church. But to get rid of me, he gave me the keys. And that night, I got alone with God. And it was in that encounter with God, he called me to this ministry. He basically just took me to scriptures. Uh, some that I shared this morning from Second uh, Kings and uh, the book of Jeremiah. And he showed me very, very clearly that when a culture forsakes God, there's a very clear progression that they follow downward into God's judgment, idolatry, immorality, and then that line that He's drawn in the sand that we talked about in humanity, the shedding of innocent blood, and judgment comes. And He just drove into my heart, Andy, that's the path the United States of America is following. And I, I'm calling you to build arcs of, this was the calling. I'm calling you to build arcs of refuge for those that will be doomed to death by the inhumanities of your age. I did not understand what that meant that night. Again, it was spring of nineteen seventy-two. Remember Roe v. Wade was what, seventy-three. I couldn't even have told you what an abortion was in 1972. But I carried that burden with me. And then God, of course, revealed very clearly what the inhumanity was and that that would be my focus in ministry. But here's what I want to share with you. In that encounter with God, it was so very, very clear. He said, Andy, before we take the first step forward, we need to get a few things straight between you and me. He took me to the book of Joshua. He took me to the fifth chapter of the book of Joshua. In the encounter that Joshua had with the pre-incarnate Christ. Let me just quickly rehearse the story for you. And then I just simply, as we close, want to share the three truths that God drove into my heart that night. And I want to leave them with you and I trust God will capture your heart with them as well. The children of Israel have just gone into the Promised Land. They're under the new leader, Joshua. Staring right in their face is the greatest military fortress in all of Canaan, the military fortress of Jericho. Apparently, Joshua steals off by himself. We know that Jericho was, in, was built in the middle of a huge open plain surrounded by some um, low hills. And apparently Joshua gets off on top of one of those hills to just evaluate the situation. Uh, You remember under Moses, he was what? The military commander of the people. This was a great warrior, great soldier, great military strategist. And he knows that's the key to conquering the promised land. There's no greater fortress than Jericho. And so he's on that hill and we can only imagine. We're not told specifically what he's thinking, but... Knowing his background, he's trying to figure out what's my strategy going to be. And uh, what he would have been looking at in that day would be considered an impossibility. He's realizing no chance for sneak attack, it's in an open valley. Uh, And then there's big walls, and the city was built, we know from archaeological studies, on a 50 foot mound of earth. Pretty difficult to get a battering ram going up with any momentum. To make a breach in a wall that we believe was about 12 to 15 feet thick. 30 feet high. Wide enough for men to, of course, defend that. And so he had to have been just overwhelmed. And just scratching his head. All of a sudden. And remember, he's in alone in enemy territory. All of a sudden he realizes he's not alone. And the Bible says he sees a man to his side and he sees this man not only to his side but the man has his sword drawn. Joshua is a soldier. He's going for his sword. And he asks the question that you would think he would ask. He says, are you for us or are you against us? And the intent in the question is if you're for us Let's join our swords, let's join our hearts and our heads and figure out how we're going to get the victory down there in that valley. But if you're against us, one of us is about to fall right here. As we go into hand-to-hand combat. Of course, he does not realize this is the pre-incarnate Christ. He just sees a man with his sword drawn. So Jesus answers him. He says, are you for us or are you against us? And let me give you the more literal rendering from the Hebrew text. This is Jesus' answer. He says, are you for us or are you against us? Jesus looks at him and he says, neither. But his captain of the Lord's host, I am, has come. Not to take sides, but to take over. Joshua immediately knew he was in the presence of Almighty God. The Bible says he did the only sensible thing you can do in the presence of God. He put his face in the ground. And he said the only sensible thing you can say to Almighty God. He said, what saith my Lord to his servant? And the no-miss Christ answer to that second question, he says, Joshua, take off your sandals, boy, because you are standing on holy ground. And the fifth chapter ends by saying, and Joshua did so. It's very unfortunate there's a chapter break because it is in that encounter with Christ, as you move into chapter, that Jesus gives Joshua the battle plan. And did the battle plan make any sense to a seasoned soldier like Joshua? I mean, march around the little city, toot your little horns, you know, all of that. But you know the story. I don't have to go into that. As they obeyed God, God's power was released through their faith and obedience. And he granted them a miraculous, supernatural victory. And they didn't even have to fight. God did it for them. These were the three truths that God drew over into my heart. that I pray he'll drive into yours. He said, Andy, let's get this straight going forward. You will never conquer in life or ministry unless you are my captive. You'll never conquer unless you are my captive. And just think about that for a moment in light of even the biblical context. Before Joshua recognized Jesus was present, where was his entire focus? Jericho. What he viewed to be the problem. What he viewed to be the great obstacle, the great adversary, the great enemy. When Jesus shows up, where is Christ's focus? He doesn't even glance at Jericho. The whole focus is what? On his child, Joshua. Why? Why, why, why? What a message to the pro-life ministry. And it's simply this. Jericho wasn't any problem to Jesus. We see that clearly later in the story. The only issue on that hill that day was whether or not his child Joshua would put himself in such a position of dependency and surrender on Jesus that he would know his unlimited resources to gain the victory. And folks, it's still the same today. The issue is not our opposition. It's not the adversary. We need to look in the mirror. And are we willing to see our total, absolute dependence upon God? Are we willing to provide Him absolute surrender, giving Him the freedom to arrange the affairs of our lives in the way that He deems best to accomplish His plans and purposes? And he said, Andy, going forward, that's how you live your life. Just every step. It's just simply, what saith my Lord to his servant? What saith my Lord to his servant? What saith my Lord to my servant? And then you do it. Second truth he drove into my heart. Andy, as you go forward, never, 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 never put the focus on gaining success in ministry. don't do that Andy put your focus on one thing only and that is holiness of heart becoming more like me Andy there's no one who loves you like I do And there's no one who knows what's best for you than I do. You can leave that to me. Would you just focus on me? And leave the outcome, leave the results to me. That's my responsibility. That's not yours. Because you can't do anything anyway, Andy. You're totally impotent. You're totally powerless. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So you'll never... Be a conqueror going forward until you're my captive. I don't want you to ever put the focus on success, but rather holiness of heart and life, in other words, in simple terms, maintain me as your first love. Realize there's never going to be a more important ingredient in ministry than your personal relationship with, with me. And then the third truth he drove into my heart, Andy, your weakness will be my opportunity To demonstrate my strength. So as you go forward, don't whine about your weakness. Don't whine about your inadequacy. Trust me. Just like Joshua was faced with his Jericho, you're going to be faced with many. And and what was Jericho? And what are our Jerichos today? Opportunities. Opportunities brilliantly disguised by God as impossibilities. Why? So that he would get the glory. So with an all said and done, there's only one explanation. God did it! And he gets the praise. He gets the glory. And those were the three truths. That he captured my heart with that night. That still has captured my heart. That I'm still working on by his grace. And I trust. God will drive that into your heart as well. And capture you. Would you bow with me in prayer as we close. Let me just offer just some few moments of silence just to give you an opportunity to respond. Just whatever God's doing in your heart, I I trust He's moving, I trust He's working. I don't need to tell you how to pray, how to respond. Lord Jesus, we do surrender to you. We do say like Joshua, what saith my Lord to his servant? Lord, give us eyes to see and hearts to understand that that is the essence of the Christian life. What saith my Lord to his servant? That we will never be conquerors until we are your captive. And Father, we need your grace. You know how so easy it is for us to focus on On success. On outcomes. Results. Not only in our lives, but in our ministries. Help us to see that that is not our responsibility. Because we are impotent to produce any results, outcomes. It's only by your power. Therefore, you ask us to simply keep our focus on you and that dependent, surrendered attitude, knowing that the one who loves us most knows what is best. So we don't have to worry about that. We don't have to become anxious about that. It's just about becoming like you. in success or in failure from a human perspective. And then, Father, we surrender to you our weakness to be your opportunity to demonstrate your power. Forgive us for whining about our weakness, whining about our inadequacies. Oh, God, open our eyes to see that is the very opportunity that you've provided for your strength to be perfected in us that you might shine forth through us. So, Lord, as we close, this is my prayer for every life here, for every ministry represented here. Oh, God, for your honor, for your glory, please, we trust you. Grant us, according to the riches of your glory, to be strengthened with power through the person of the Holy Spirit in the inner man because it's there in the inner man that you desire holiness and purity, authenticity, transparency, honesty, Christ-likeness. Oh, Holy Spirit, we cannot produce that. Only you can change us from the inside out. So, Holy Spirit, do your refining work. Do your purifying work. Cleanse us. Change us. That, yes, Christ would be formed in us to be displayed through us. That in our hearts, He would find a home. In our ministries, He would find a home where He could comfortably dwell. To have His way, to have His will. With no resistance. As we're totally and absolutely surrendered to You. And then open our eyes to see how... You have rooted us and grounded us in your love. A love from which nothing can uproot us. Nothing can sever us from that love. So Lord, give us the wonderful grace and privilege to grow, to experience, to enjoy that love. It, the length of that love. The depth, breadth, and height of that love. And as we become secure in that love, you would free us then. To love one another and to love a lost world. To love our clients. And then Lord fill us with your fullness. Yes remove everything in our lives that is not like Jesus. And fill us with Jesus that wherever we are wherever you send us Jesus would be put on display. That we would decrease. He would increase. They would forget the channel. Seeing only our master. And now Lord. As we close this evening. We're going to trust you. We're going to believe you. That you are at work. Even when we can't see it. Even when we can't feel it. Even when we're in. The dark cave of despair. We're going to believe that you are at work. And you are at work to do exceedingly, abundantly, above and beyond anything that any one of us could even ask or think or pray in and through our lives and in and through our ministries. And we're trusting that you'll do this for your honor. And for your glory. Father, capture us in the love of Jesus. Let us all have a fresh encounter with you. To leave this conference never the same again. Marked by you. Captured by you. Apprehended by you. Not that we won't fail going forward. We will in our human frailty. But thank you. Although afflicted, not crushed. Although perplexed, not despairing. Although persecuted, not forsaken. And although, yes, often knocked down. We're never knocked out of the contest. Not because of us, but because of you. Because you won't let go. And you will be faithful. which in Christ's name we pray. Amen.